Hello and welcome to the Daddy Saturday podcast. I'm your host, Justin Batt, and I'm also the founder and chief dad officer of Daddy Saturday and the Daddy Saturday Foundation, where it is our goal to impact 10 million fathers in the next 10 years and to end the fatherlessness epidemic. We do that in a variety of ways, and one of those is through this podcast, where we bring on experts, guests who provide dad tips, tricks, and even dad hacks to help you be a better father, be more intentional and engaged with your kids, to raise good kids who become great adults. As always, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you can hear every week our new and great guests that we have on. We've got a stacked lineup for you, and our guest today has become a friend. He is someone who I know will not disappoint. He's got seven children, so he's an expert in fatherhood by far seven times over. It is my pleasure to introduce and welcome to the podcast Rabbi Daniel Lappin. He is known worldwide as America's Rabbi. He is a noted rabbinic scholar, popular international speaker, and clearly a best-selling author multiple times over. He hosts the Rabbi Daniel Lappin podcast of his own, and he co-hosts the Ancient Jewish Wisdom TV show with his wonderful wife, Susan. As I mentioned, they have seven children, and we're going to talk today about Rabbi Lappin's tips on finances, faith, as well as family, and how he and his wife, Susan, have achieved that over the years. Rabbi Lappin, pleasure to have you here on the podcast today. Great to be together with you. I've really been looking forward to this, and uh, we've we've collaborated on, on a number of other things, and particularly some in which you've been so very, very helpful to me, and uh, I very much appreciated that. Well, you know, as I, as I told you when I first met you, you certainly were someone that inspired me from a distance. I've always considered you a, a digital mentor, if you will, and I just absolutely treasure the wisdom and words that you have put out through many of your books. Uh, my favorite to date is Thou Shalt Prosper. And I just learned so much from that. And I encourage anyone listening, if you want a great book that just has phenomenal foundational principles for finance and even finances you can pass on to your children, um, that, that book clearly has it. So thank you, Rabbi Lappin. You're welcome. And, and one of the things we might want to touch on um, as we continue our discussion today um, is the whole question of, you know, when is it uh, the right age to introduce one's children to the realities of money? I think it's a great starting point. And something that I clearly get asked a lot is, is at what age do you start? What does that look like? And and then, you know, how do you teach your children about the principles of, of finance, especially biblical finance? Well, it's, uh, it, it's important, I think, to overcome the intuitive tendency that so many people have, uh, which is that money is sort of uh, unworthy, unwholesome, a little bit grubby, and that we don't talk about it so much and that, uh, that we don't want to contaminate our children. Uh, with my, so a lot of people have that, and that inhibits them from doing what is their truly what is their God-given responsibility, which is to educate their children into how the world really works, and uh, and and that, and to to leave out money is uh, is an appalling omission. Um, it's um, uh, it, it has all kinds of of subsequent impacts. I mean, uh, one. One couple consulted me 
uh, a year or two ago uh, about a, a young college age child who was um, behave he was doing things that uh, he knew his parents wouldn't approve of and and they didn't and they uh, they contacted me to sit down with me and ask is there anything at all they can do because they know that their son is engaged in self-destructive behavior uh, it's you know it's what his peer group is doing at college and uh, and they don't like it and my first question was well may i ask how is he living uh, you know how does he eat how does he get around and they had trouble understanding my question until i focused in on it and i just said well I'm trying to find out if you're supplying him with money. And they said, well, yes, of course. I said, how much? And they told me a rather high figure. And I said, well, then it's simple. Sit down with him man to man very uh, uh, responsibly and say, as long as you are depending on our money, then this is how you will behave. And if that's not acceptable to you, you're welcome to turn off the spigot and run your life the way you choose. And they were shocked and they said, but isn't that wrong to use money as a cudgel to bring about other behavior, behaviors that we want in other people? Not at all. You do that every single time. You know, when you uh, when you ask your tax preparer uh, to have the documents ready for you by Wednesday, that is using money as a cudgel. If, if you have value as a client to your tax preparer, they will do that. And if you're not paying them and they're just doing it for you as a favor, then they won't. And so in, in almost everything we do, what, Ayn Rand said it very well. And uh, I don't agree with everything she said, but this is true. She said there are only really two ways to persuade people to do your will. One is with a gun and the other is with money. And uh, we much prefer the latter. So, yeah, bringing this to the attention of our children early on is really important. But uh, to, before you can even do that, you have to overcome your own internal instincts that, um, that, that money is not a good thing. Well, and you talk about that in Thou Shalt Prosper and that, that transfer of value. If, if someone's giving you a dollar or a hundred dollar bill... That's the physical transfer of value. And and do you feel like part of it today, and, and our good friend Dave Ramsey talks a lot about this, and one of the challenges of teaching children about money today is that so much of it is is virtual or digital, right? You don't have the transfer of the physical cash much anymore. People typically use cards. And if you're a younger child watching your parents go to the grocery store, all you see is then put a, a credit card or a debit card into the slot of a machine and pull that out. You don't see that physical transfer anymore. So do you feel like that's made it more difficult to establish the concept of, of money? Not really, because at the age, I believe that it's appropriate to uh, introduce children to money. Um, you know, it's very simple. You, you give your child uh, little bottles or boxes or, or containers, um, and, uh, and, and each child gets these... Uh, labeled, you know, three of them, charity, savings, spending. And then you m create a situation or a circumstance where your children can actually earn money and add to those. Uh, there are also times where they get fined for infractions of accepted family behavior and so on. So um, 
by the time they become more aware of, of a sort of credit card economy or a digital economy, uh, they're already older and, uh, and, and many fundamental principles have already been established. But the, I think the, the real challenge is, of course, that a very little that we can do at home by, in the ordinary day-to-day scheme of things can combat the pictures of popular culture. In other words, um, only just, I mean, I, I keep hearing this, although I've heard it for years, but funnily enough, just yesterday, um, in the context of some things going on in politics, I heard a, upon <laughs> me, a prominent politician say, we have to make sure that the rich pay their fair share. And, um, and uh, you know, another one said, well, we're going to really sock it to the rich. And I... I realize that children who hear that are very impacted by that notion. What that message is, is that the rich people are bad. They need to be punished uh, because they're obviously trying to avoid paying their fair share. And then in terms of of entertainment, it's so very destructive because, uh, you know, if, if your child has a lot of television exposure, then already by a shockingly young age, your child has seen that the villain on primetime television responsible for the overwhelming majority of destructive behavior, whether it's violence or, or, or destroying the environment, almost always are evil, corrupted, um, rich businessmen. That's nearly always what it is. Um, it's almost a cliche to watch the camera panning up the side of the gleaming glass skyscraper to the penthouse office, and it then zooms in, and there's our hero confronting the evil businessman uh, with the evidence he has of how this evil corporation has been damaging the environment. And I, I could list, you know, twenty movies or twenty shows that uh, that have this theme, and then the businessman reaches into the top right hand drawer of his desk and pulls out, well, what obviously we all keep in our top right-hand drawers, namely uh, a stainless steel six-inch barrel 357 Magnum revolver. So um, this is incredibly destructive, and, and children, like anybody else, really do get indoctrinated to believe that the practice of business lacks all morality and dignity, and that the pursuit of wealth is at its core unworthy. So, so good, Rabbi Lappin. And I, I think as I hear you, there's there's this theme that was bubbling up for me as I listened to that commentary. And and it's a, something that I hear from a lot of parents. And it's something that I clearly also am struggling with in my own children in this generation is not raising entitled children. And what you talked about is that sense of entitlement sometimes that is placed onto others where the rich need to give to the the poor or those that have too much need to give that out almost in a sense of entitlement. And at the same time, if you are one of those families that has been financially blessed, then there's also that challenge of how to not raise entitled children who feel like they just are you know, walking into this life of financial stability because they were brought up that way. So any thoughts around um, either both sides or one side of that entitlement coin? 
Very much so. You see, part, and, and I, I do a lot of this in my books, as you alluded to, but um, part, of, part of this is very much educating children from a young age that there is a huge difference between rights and responsibilities. And something very fundamental, something that uh, you can already start talking to your children about around the dinner table um, is simple questions. You know, uh, for instance, do you think that anybody else has a right to your money? You know, that money you've got in those three little boxes or one of them you're giving to charity. What happens if somebody knocks on the door and says, hi, uh, I'm... Uh, a charitable, I'm a charity, I'm a poor person, whatever you want to say, and I'm here to collect my money. Now, what would you say to that person? So this is a very worthwhile conversation. Uh, how about if uh, somebody comes and uh, knocks on the door and says, well, I notice you've got another two canisters. One has money labeled for spending, the other one is for saving. And uh, uh we, we realize that uh, down the block where we live, we don't have that amount of money. And so that's not fair. We want you to share that with us. So as you have some and we have some. Isn't that the only fair thing to do? Well, what would you say to the kid down the block who comes and, and, and wants that to happen? And so just establishing this fundamental principle that I may have a right – excuse me, forgive me, correct that – I may have a responsibility or an obligation to give – charity as i do but that place that gives absolutely no other person on the planet a right to my money i get to choose whoever i want to give that to but no one else has a right to it so the whole idea of uh, of who of ownership things belonging these are, are are things that if you do not teach your child i promise you the culture will Oh my gosh, that is so good. I love the rights versus responsibilities and you laid that out so clearly and I can I can see that conversation at my own dinner table and I hope our listeners can too. You've mentioned now the jars or the boxes a couple of times and and we certainly have done that. Uh, we do what what Dave Ramsey recommends in in his uh, financial literacy for children and that is the the 10 10 80 rule where the first 10% of what they make goes to a charitable cause or tithing to the church. The next 10% is in savings. And then the third 10% or third 80% is what they can then be a steward of and then use for their own, their own purposes. And, you know, those, those seem like kind of restrictive behaviors, but that's the point is right. You're teaching behaviors and something that, that I found, and I know you talk a lot about as well is the importance of, of understanding the behavioral component to, to money or to finances. Very much so. And, and also children understanding that, uh, that restrictions on our instincts lie at the foundation of civilized living, whether it's in a family or in a country or a neighborhood or a city. That idea of restrictions on instincts is hugely important. It's a fundamental difference between people and animals. And, uh, and one that we, 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 we are obliged as parents to work very hard on instilling in our children. So you've got a quote that I wanted to reference, and it applies so, so very well to the conversation that we're having. And you said that by remaining exactly the same today as you were yesterday, you're guaranteeing that tomorrow will be no better than today. 
And as parents, so many parents, yourself and myself included, I know we want to give our children that legacy. We want their their tomorrow to be better than our today. And a big part of that is, is their financial security or stability. So when you think about parents that want to help their children to achieve financial success in the future, and I'm not necessarily referring to the amount of money they have, it's how they handle their money or what they do with their money. What advice would you have to those parents that want to help their children guarantee their tomorrow will be better than today? Uh, first of all, don't wait too long. Start young. Uh, these are not conversations that should be left until after puberty, for instance. Uh, the the idea of self-restraint and the idea that the uh, that the human beings urges and appetites are not automatically uh, surrendered to um, is something that you can only get across in the early years uh, you know five to twelve because if you wait until puberty, at that point, you've got the urgent callings of, uh, of youth. And, um, and if that's the very first time that a child hears the notion that you sometimes have to say no to what you deeply desire, it's too late. And in this area, uh, it's important to remember that, that sex and money are incredibly closely connected. Um, in terms of uh, these are, are two urgent and compelling pulls that the good Lord built into human beings. And, um, and, and they, they very often go together. It, it, it is unfortunately just a reality in, in our society and in that of many other countries around the world as well. And that is that people who exercise very little restraint in the area of sexuality, in other words, uh, replacing the lifestyle of a stable and functional family with um, unrestrained concupiscence, uh, very seldom acquire wealth, very seldom build it up, because exactly the same principles of what I've been referring to as self-restraint uh, apply and bring benefits in both those areas. And a lot of parents have uh, reneged on the responsibility of discussing sex and money uh, with their children and assume that this is going to be done at schools. And I, I truly can't think of a, of a worse a solution to a very pressing and urgent problem, which is who is going to be the one to provide your child, your young child, with their worldview of both these critical areas of human experience. Oh my gosh, mind mind blown after that comment. I, I think that it's so critical. And, and when you look at even back to scripture, I mean, in the Bible, money is referenced more than heaven and hell combined. There's clearly a reason for that, right? And, well, in and the in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, hell is not referred to at all. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means that uh, this is meant to be God's instruction manual for healthy living on on this earth during the limited time He's given us to be here. 
and as you correctly say, money is is referred to more often than than, than almost anything else because it is so very fundamental, and this is why it is so wrong. Uh, for parents to somehow believe that their job as parents is sheltering their children from financial realities. Uh, don't do that. You know, if, if you want your children um, to have a healthy relationship with money and with wealth as they grow older, you cannot start too young in helping them understand exactly what it is. Uh, if you know, and and many parents are not necessarily equipped, and that's one of the reasons there are plenty good books around. I don't want to be obnoxiously self-promotional, but there are many good books around that equip parents uh, to talk to have important money conversations. You know, not not once, but on a regular basis, all the time. What is money? How do you get money? Um, is uh, it, does it come about because you take it from somebody? What does making money mean? Is it possible to create money? These are things that, uh, with enough preparation time, uh, a parent who spends a little less time watching, you know, videos on YouTube, a little more time preparing for a meal, and this is an important thing, and I'm I'm sure you've touched on it many times, Justin, is that. Part of being a responsible parent is that uh, you prepare. You don't come to a meal cold. If there's going to be a meal where you're lucky enough to have your children sitting at the table with you, then you need to have done homework. You need to have done prep work. And if you if your memory isn't up to it, then use little index cards. But you need to have conversation topics ready at the table. You have to have questions ready to ask. And you have to be sitting forward in a posture of intense curiosity and interest so that your children are stimulated to participate in the conversation. I mean, what parent hasn't had the experience of saying, how was school today? Kids said, fine. What did you do? Nothing, right? We all know that, right? Well, <laughs> because that is such, <laughs> pardon me, such a cliched question and uh, your children sense that you have absolutely no interest in their answer. Uh, but if you do your homework and uh, and and prep for for a meal or for a drive or any time you're blessed to have your children in your company, uh, use that time by preparing for it responsibly. No, such a great great tip for our listeners. And um, you know, I I clearly in the book and talk about this a lot that the dinner table is such a tremendous opportunity to have those conversations, and especially when you have multiple children. You, know, you get to hear different viewpoints and different philosophies. And we love to play a game called Table Topics. And it has questions that stimulate dialogue. We play the family version. And there are plenty of questions that talk about money. One of the my favorite recent memories, Rabbi Lappin, was the question was something like, if you were given or won a million dollars, what would you do with that? And it was interesting hearing my children around the table and their different personalities. You know, one said he would buy his the orange Lamborghini he always wanted. And he's seven years old. Um, the other one wanted to give it away and change the world. And it was very interesting just to hear that. But that that simple question and that fun dialogue gave us the ability to dive into that. So to your point, you can't start early enough. And it's so critical to have those open conversations with your children. And, and questions like the question you raised lead on to other very important questions as well, which is, um, do you always help people by giving them money? You know, so you, Tommy, who want to give away the million dollars, let's talk about 
what might happen to the people you give that to, who are you going to choose to give it to, or uh, the um, uh, or the child who wants to buy the Lamborghini, you might say to him, I forgot to tell you one more thing, and that is that every other person in America also got a duffel bag with a million dollars in it uh, sitting on their porch in the morning and with a sign said, you know, from your government. Now, do you think you'll be able to buy the Lamborghini? You know, what difference does that make? Uh, what might happen to prices if everybody now all of a sudden has the wherewithal to go and buy that Lamborghini? Do you think you'll be able to buy? In other words, you know, thing comparative wealth, what does all that mean? Uh, all of these topics are not too sophisticated to teach to young children who are below the age of 12. It's wonderful. Um, the, the new book you have coming out, you tipped your, your hand to it a little bit around uh, the relationship between sex and money. And and I didn't know if you'd like to give the listeners a little bit more information around that and just kind of frame that up for, for the audience, as I know it's going to be a, an incredible piece of work when that is released. It's it's not out yet. Um, and I, and you can be sure I will not be in any way shy or reticent about letting the world know when, uh, when this baby is born and delivered. So uh, we'll get on to that. Yeah, but definitely. I mean, that one... It, it's it's really very very interesting because uh, it was stimulated by um, realizations like, for instance, you know, after we've had gender equality in the United States now for more than half a century. I mean, that's that's been now we you know it may not have all been achieved to everyone's last desire, but but essentially the the idea has been around for fifty years or more, and so you would have thought that. Uh, by this stage, you would have thought that half the marriages that occur, occur because a man goes down on one knee and holds out a diamond ring and says, please accept this ring and make me the happiest man in the world by marrying me. And surely the other half of marriages should come about because a woman goes down on one knee and holds out a Rolex watch to a guy and says, please accept this gold watch and make me the happiest woman in the world by marrying me or me marrying you or whatever. And uh, anybody, anybody who has eyes in their head and who's lived more than a few years in reality knows that the latter doesn't happen, that somehow or another... Uh, a marriage occurs when a man takes the initiative. Wow, this is very, very shocking. And what's more, that it almost always involves a transfer of financial value from male to female. And that's really, that's really the beginning of it all. What's really going on here? And, um, and it, it, it goes on from there. It, it's been exciting to write. It really has. Yeah, no, it sounds like it's going to be a, a smash hit and, and so many great points. And you've got you've got me stimulated and thinking all about some of those constructs and how relevant for the, the time that we live in and a lot of the discourse that's happening today. Oh, yeah, very much so. Yes. Two final questions for you. So one of the questions is something that I ask all of my guests, and that is um, let's let's play pretend here for a minute. So Rabbi Lappin, if you had a boat and I'm talking like a, a yacht, a large boat, that required a name on the back of it. What would you name your boat? Well, first of all, I would never own a boat bigger than I can handle with my wife and myself, and that's about 60 feet or so. 
um, we've we've owned several boats and we've named them all exactly the same name, uh, which is Paragon. Why do you ask? Well, that um, it's a question that often I'd love you have to explain why Paragon, if you're willing. But it's a question that I often ask myself. I was in a couple of um, of harbors where I saw lots of large yachts, and I just enjoy reading the names and always wondering. Well, what caused that person to name the boat that name? And then it became, well, if I had a boat, what would I name it? And I started asking the question. And almost every time I ask the question, someone says, you know what? I've never thought of that. What made you ask the question? And it was simply for my own curiosity of wondering why people name boats what they name them. And not many people ever have a boat. And so um, I just love to ask the question to see and stimulate the curiosity in someone else. And oftentimes, you know, it, it ties into a story from their past or potentially their future of why they would name a boat. So, so if you're willing, why Paragon? Well, when we started um, our family, we decided to uh, spend our summers always as a family boating. Now, you know, when you've got one little baby, it's it's hard to sort of necessarily be able to predict what's going to happen down the road. But as it turns out, uh, that's exactly what we have done every summer. And we're not particularly adventurous or anything. We always do exactly the same thing. We boat off the west coast of Canada, off British Columbia, and that's how we spend the summer. Now, what we didn't realize at the outset was that there was an enormous family advantage that derives from keeping all your children, and you know, we had one and two and three, and then we had seven, uh, of keeping them confined to a relatively small platform. And you'd be amazed how small even a 60-foot boat really is after five weeks with nine people on board. So uh, uh, we, we, we discovered just incredible uh, educational advantages in terms of them all learning how to get along with each other by being forced to be in, uh, in, in relatively close confines in that way. And we used to find, especially when they were little, that after our summer boat trip, when we uh, got back home again, we found that all seven of them sort of rearranged their beds, moving beds in and out of rooms. So the, all seven of them ended up sleeping in, in two or three rooms instead of five rooms. So they just got used to the proximity and the, the, the time together. So just enormous benefits came out of that. And, uh, and why we always named our boats uh, Paragon. Paragon, a word derived from the Hebrew fruit of the garden. And so it has Eden-like connotations and the idea of uh, our family being uh, a, a replacement Garden of Eden and the fruit of that Garden of Eden are our children, our family, and so on. So that was, that was how we came to Paragon, which is just that word. Oh, it's fabulous. Well, right there is why I asked that question and the story you just gave. So thank you for sharing that and, and what wonderful memories as a family you've been able to create as a result. So I uh, love that. Well, last, last question is if you would love to leave our listeners with one final remark about raising good kids that become great adults, and then please share with the audience uh, where they can find more about you. Well, uh, first of all, my website is rabbidaniellappin.com. And um, also reachable by going to youneedarabbi.com. You know, I I think uh, building a family is far too complex a thing to be reduced to a single slogan. Um, and so I think one, one must sort of resist the temptation and say, ah, here comes, you know, the, the ultimate wisdom of Rabbi Daniel Lapp. And just remember this thing, serve jelly beans after dinner. That's all you got to remember, you know. 
Um, and so I, I sort of want to uh, evade that trap if I can. But, but at the same time, uh, acceding to your request, I, I would say that um, success is achieved by doing the right small thing hundreds of times rather than by doing one huge thing one time. So in other words, uh, if you maintain through constant vigilance and uh, a thousand course corrections, the basic idea for your children that uh, actions have consequences and, um, and that when we do the right thing, the consequences are better than when we do the wrong thing. And it's a thousand little course corrections, you know. It's, uh, uh, yes, you, you, you get a dessert after dinner or, uh, you know what, you're going to have to pay a fine of 50 cents for, for what you just did. Uh, and so on and so forth. That, over the course of a year, achieves a great deal more than indifference and carelessness during the year and one huge trip to Disneyland. You know, as it, that, that the, the, the giant gesture doesn't achieve nearly as much as all the, the many, many, many little right things along the route. Mm, could not agree more with that statement. Well, thank you for imparting your wisdom for our audience here today. Always a pleasure to connect with you. Thank you for being America's rabbi and just giving the wisdom continually from your own experience and from the world that is around us. So Rabbi Lappin, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you, Justin. Great to be with you. Absolutely. Well, as always, be intentional, be engaged, raise good kids who become great adults. And until next time, make it a great Daddy Saturday. Thanks for listening.